Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, former president of Ireland, Mary Robinson. More fallout from the latest IPCC report. And are we in the midst of an insect apocalypse? Well, we would love to know what you think. You can email us at downtoearth@newstalk.com. It's time to head down to Earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. Hi. There's no doubt, I think, you would agree that the biggest environmental story of the week was the launch of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC report, which is the third report of their sixth assessment round. So since... I think 1990 or early 1990s, they've been doing these reports. Uh, I don't think this report got quite as much attention as Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. What did you think of the coverage? Yeah, I agree, Carla. You know, I I think one of the problems about this is each time one of these UN reports comes out, uh, you know, I think to people who aren't close to the details, it probably sounds like they've heard it all before. And that's genuinely because they have (laughs) and each time you know the UN and the scientists try and ramp up and quite rightly so of course the kind of emotion about it the language around it and this time they did exactly that Uh, the words were being used like scandalous naivety whole scale failure sleepwalking into climate catastrophe this that's not the kind of language you normally get from scientists or indeed from the UN Secretary General but that's what we're hearing this time around but as Zach, as you say, it was very hard for it to cut through and to get that kind of real attention, I think, in the mainstream public, uh, because so many other things are going on. And because, sadly, people, they feel they've heard it before. So I think that's what was uh, really challenging this time around. Yeah. Also, there's an element, I think, of bad timing. The last report that, that came out was just before the conflict in the Ukraine. So, that you know, th- these stories are, are probably getting buried partially because of timing, partially because of messaging. But I do think the messaging is confusing. Like when I read the report, you know, on one hand, you're hearing Antonio Gutierrez saying it's a file of shame and we've we've failed. And then on the other hand, it's saying we've one last shot and there's all this hope. And and even I find myself too emotionally confused to really know what the take home message is or, you know, what I should do with this information. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think the problem is with anything to do with climate change, it is important to hold many different narratives in our head at the same time. And they're all accurate, by the way. Uh, It does seem contradictory, but, you know, that is the nature of the beast, as it were. So, of course, you can look at it and there's so much to be miserable about. I mean, in 2019, emissions were 12 percent higher globally than they were in 2010. So that's not good. And we're definitely not on track to stabilise global temperature at 1.5 degrees. In fact, it looks like we're heading more towards at least 3.2 degrees, which, of course, would be catastrophic uh, if we get to that. However, as you say, you know, the report also pointed out that there are reasons for hope. At least 18 countries have managed to continued emissions cuts for more than a decade. The costs of key technologies for decarbonisation have plummeted between 2010 and 2019. For example, unit costs of solar energy fell by 85%, wind energy by 55%, lithium-ion batteries used in electric cars and energy storage by 85%. So all that is encouraging. The problem is, the reason these two narratives exist at the same time is is we are getting those cuts in, in the cost of new technologies and we're getting rapid deployment new technologies, but they're basically making up for what would be new fossil fuel infrastructure uh, rather than actually taking away the old uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. And until we actually start to see some of that old fossil fuel infrastructure closing down, which we are seeing in some bits of the world, in some areas, uh, but unless we start seeing that at scale, we're not going to get the kind of um, uh, ramping up of uh, change that is really needed to tackle this. So this is the end of their uh, their sixth assessment period, and presumably it'll be probably another five years or so before they do their their seventh. So, wh- I mean, what do you think we do with this information now that we have it and it's kind of what we're going to be relying on for, I think, the next five years or so? 
Well, I mean, of course, it just means the things we already know, number one, that we've got to move much, much faster. I mean, I was talking about the quotes and the language this time around. Uh, I think uh, and Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, was trying to say this isn't about taking action next year or next month. It's about doing it now. And uh, we really do need to kind of get on with it and cut those emissions quickly. And I think I think what's interesting about that with the, the whole shock of what's happening in Ukraine and how that's causing people to think differently, perhaps about energy, it does play into immediately the kind of thinking about, well, well, how do we change our energy security in that? We've got to move away from fossil fuels. It's not just about trying to get fossil fuels from a different place. We have to be thinking now about actually replacing fossil fuels. Um, but I think the other message that came through really clearly in this was around climate adaptation, um, which, of course, in these kind of reports in the past that have come from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they are focused on climate mitigation. What do we do to to try and uh, reduce climate change rather than adapting to it. But I think because we largely failed in addressing this, um, there was a much greater uh, talk about climate adaptation in this report than previously. So for example, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization said, we need to pay attention to climate adaptation. Climate change will continue for decades and centuries. Early warning services are in growing need, especially in least developed countries and small island states. So when I think, Carl, what is interesting there, there's almost an uh, implicit uh, acknowledgement there that we failed and we're going to have to just get ready to deal with some of the implications of this now, as well as trying to cut uh, emissions as fast as possible. But let's also just remember just how, how bad we've done on this, really. Um, Inga Anderson, the Executive Director of uh, UNEP, the United Nations Environment Programme, pointed out the last two decades saw the highest increase in emissions in human history. So with all that talk over the last two decades about climate change and how serious it is and how we've got to ramp up efforts, actually it's the last two decades that have seen the highest increase in emissions. Yeah, and 30 years of emissions going up instead of down when we've been working on this. But I thought it was interesting that a lot of the solutions to climate change were, were also things that would help with air pollution, which is an immediate health problem all over the world, including here in Ireland. So it makes sense that the second news story that really broke this week uh, was on new air pollution guidelines from the World Health Organization or the WHO. So what is the WHO saying about air pollution right now, Craig? Yeah, well, this is sort of shocking in one sense. And uh, as ever with the stories we talk about, Carl, shocking and not shocking all at the same time. Um, what the WHO uh, said this week is that now uh, it estimates that the vast majority of people on planet Earth, almost everyone, they say, now live in areas with harmful levels of air pollution that breach their own guidelines as to what they consider as safe. So their official figure is that 99% of the world's population is now affected by air pollution, and that's up from 90% just four years ago, uh, given that they've moved to more stringent standards. Now, of course, it won't surprise you that that's mostly in cities, and of course, India has nine of the world's 10 cities with the worst air pollution caused by a tiny pollution known as PM 2.5. Um, but actually, obviously, some of it is also in the countryside. And, and although the sources of uh, most air pollution comes from the burning of fossil fuels, in cars and power plants. Actually, a lot of pollu air pollution does come from farming, which is why you do get uh, air pollution in the rural environment, environment as well. And actually, even natural sources like desert sand, when these kind of all combine together, uh, and indeed with you know cook stoves in, in, in developing countries as well, actually that results in um, this combination of air pollution. And I, I certainly thought it was a really important thing to talk about this week, because what I've always found astonishing about air pollution is, is it is one of those things that we know what we need to do to solve it. You know, it's actually much easier than, say, trying to tackle climate change. I think you're absolutely right to point out that most of the solutions to tackling air pollution are the same as those tackling to climate change. But they are the easiest ones, you know, um, essentially move from burning fossil fuel uh, in cars to electric vehicles, for example, and in power plants as well. They're relatively easy compared to the whole uh, picture of, of climate change. And yet, you know, the number of people that this affects is, is huge. I mean, the World Health Organization estimates it's like one in eight deaths globally that in one way or another are affected by air pollution. So I think it's, a, I've always found it astonishing that it's become one of those things that we've, has become so normalized over the last few decades, perhaps the last century, that we just don't think we have to address it as much as perhaps we should. And yet, we know we can do it. And the proof of that is actually Beijing, because we've all got, probably everyone has got this image of Beijing being incredibly polluted. 
But actually, uh, Beijing has done a good job of trying to tidy up uh, and clean up its air over the last few years. So believe it or not, it's now only number 76 in the most polluted mm-hmm. cities globally. So it yeah. does show that, well, that look, things can be done. I mean, partially because they, they run like a dictatorship. Or they are, so it's a lot easier to make change. But actually, in, in Ireland, uh, you wouldn't think this is an issue, but but actually we have 1,300 premature deaths a year as a result of the particulate matter from the burning of sol- solid fuels. So we really just, in general, need to stop burning stuff to deal with this. But I think we're, we're seeing a lot more monitoring, even places like Ireland, where, where maybe this issue wasn't seen as a problem because of our low population density. And actually this week, good news story, the the um, county council in Cork has designated their first clean air zone, a, a road in Cork where they've put lots of monitoring stations and they're, they're ped- fully pedestrianizing it to make it a really healthy place for people to live and, and shop and enjoy. So I, I, I'm starting to see a shift really and maybe people are making the connection that, you know, this is a toll on our health service and this is resulting in premature deaths. And so maybe it's something we should respond to. Are you seeing the same thing in the UK? Uh, Well, slowly but surely, um, I mean, you know, in the UK, it's estimated the government's own figures in the UK estimate that there's 50,000 people die prematurely because of air pollution in the UK every year. Uh, And that's a huge number when you think about it. I mean, I often find myself thinking, imagine if it was a a, a foreign invader that was doing that, you know, we would Mm. react rather differently. But when it's ourselves and our, our own cars and our um, uh, wood burning stoves or whatever actually we don't react in quite the same way yeah. but we are starting to see real actions and I think what's interesting is when you have power devolved to cities and city mayors in particular that often makes it easier for them to take the actions needed introducing congestion zones and so on to make a difference on this for I have sure. to say I'm really pleased to hear what you're saying about Cork uh, my family had our holiday in Cork last <laughs> summer car as you know and it's just a fantastic city and it is it is absolutely beautiful and it does show that often the best action can happen at that town and city level. Absolutely. Finally, Craig, I was really interested in a story that came out of New York this week where the Department of Environment and Conservation is trying to decide whether to renew an air permit application for a gas power plant that's being used to generate Bitcoin, so the the cryptocurrency, and that's been getting a lot of attention this week because Russia says they're considering accepting Bitcoin as a payment for oil and gas exports. And and actually, a report was just released saying that Irish people, followed by uh, people in the UK, are the most crypto curious in the world in terms of their interest in investing in Bitcoin. But this has huge environmental problems. So, what are the potential environmental problems associated with these Bitcoin or, or crypto plants? It is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I'm sure people might have picked up on this a little bit over the last few years. But, you know, Bitcoin, essentially, when it is, it's called that it's mined. In other words, what actually that you have is you have thousands of computers all lined up, crunching very complicated algorithms to produce this cryptocurrency. And um, it, it is absolutely extraordinary, some of the figures on this. It's been estimated that uh, around the world, computers operating constantly to create uh, Bitcoin generate the same carbon emissions as the whole of the New Zealand economy. So 37 megatons. So it just seems, I mean, intuitively, it seems mad, doesn't it, that we, just at the time we're trying to tackle climate change uh, and and get serious about it, actually, we then produce this, this cryptocurrency that involves huge amounts of carbon emissions associated with generating it. And you would have thought, you would hope, that uh, actually, if you at least if you're going to create uh, big uh, Bitcoin mines, that at least you do it when they can be powered by renewable electric- electricity. But that's not the case. Actually, sadly, a lot of them, including this one that there's this controversy about in New York State, uh, as you say, uh, that is would be uh, fueled by fracked gas. Can you believe? Yeah. So uh, actually, we are seeing you know quite a lot of fossil fuels going into power generation to create Bitcoin. And that's a real, real problem. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, actually, this in... this particular plant, I should say, was a struggling coal plant that operated about 6% of the time uh, before 2014. And then this investment company came and purchased it and began running it 24-7 around the clock to make Bitcoin with 20,000 computers mining this cryptocurrency. So actually, I, I think you could argue that it's doing more damage as a cryptocurrency plant running 24-7 than it was as a as a coal plant that only ran 6% of the time. And that is really scary because these investors are looking at all of these old coal plants that are starting to shut down as a result of climate action and seeing this as an opportunity. It could really make the climate problem worse, couldn't it? 
It really could. I mean, I think this definitely needs new attention. I mean, we can all understand that it's easier to change. Uh, it's much harder to change or get rid of old infrastructure, fossil fuel infrastructure, than it is to stop new uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. And I, th I think, but what we're seeing here at the moment is new infrastructure in the form of Bitcoin supporting the old fossil fuel infrastructure. There's got to be interventions here from policymakers to change this. Otherwise, it just undermines, you know, all those other attempts that we're trying to make to tackle climate emergency. For sure. So maybe our crypto curious listeners will rethink their investments in Bitcoin. But thanks for the rundown of the weekly big news on the planet, Craig. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks. Speak next week. After the break, we'll be digging deep into the insect apocalypse. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. Hopefully our listeners aren't afraid of creepy crawlies because I'm joined by environmental writer Oliver Millman, whose new book, Insect Crisis, explains how insect populations are experiencing worrying declines, and some have even referred to this as an insect apocalypse. Hi, Oliver. Hi there. Good to be with you. Thanks for coming on. I was I was really surprised reading your work to find out that seventy five percent of all the Earth's species are insects, yet we're we're so rarely even aware of them. They're almost invisible. So so how bad is this crisis that you've written about? And w would you actually say that apocalypse would be an accurate description of it? Um, I mean, scientists kind of shy away from that kind of biblical language, but certainly uh, the kind of in the kind of four or five years we've become aware of this problem I would say uh, there are certainly those who would use that term um, uh, in the media people who work in conservation and so on I mean it, it really is quite stunning when you actually look at some of the declines to see what's happening I mean uh, huge huge drops I mean in the German countryside three quarters of insects have disappeared since the Berlin Wall came down in uh, the rainforest of Puerto Rico was 98% just in the last few decades. Um, Denmark, 97%. Um, one in four bumblebees in uh, the US is um, on, on course to be kind of wiped out. Um, I mean, you're seeing all around the world where these kind of surveys are taking place, these quite astonishing drops in numbers. And, and certainly it has uh, many entomologists and those who understand the vital role that insects play in our life. Um, it makes them very worried indeed. So are you saying in one place there are there are parts of the world where 97% of the insects in that area are gone? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was this study done, quite an eccentric study done in Denmark by this scientist called Anders Pape Mullen. He he realized that just there weren't the birds in the countryside that he once uh, remembered. And he thought it may be down to the lack of insects for them to eat. So he, he's been conducting this kind of strange study where he drives his uh, old 1960s Ford Anglia car up and down the same stretch of road in Denmark. He's been doing that every summer since 1997 and counting the number of bugs that hit the windscreen. Um, and he's been kind of trapping insects around in the country there too. And, yeah, he found a 97% um, decline, which is um, which is quite amazing. We're talking about a kind of stable uh, part of Denmark, seemingly kind of quiet, clean place. Uh, we're not talking about kind of an industrial area or a war zone or anything like that. Um, so it kind of makes you think, goodness, if it's happening there, uh, it's happening in Germany and other places like that. What what's happening elsewhere around the world? I would think that would be really hard to measure, and and I would kind of wonder if if measuring what's on your windscreen is is an accurate way of determining just how bad the the crisis is. Is there? I mean, do you think these these studies hold up to robust peer reviewed science? They are. I mean, that was unusual. That one. I mean, I picked that one out because it's <laughs> quite kind of surprising these methods used. But uh, I mean, the standard surveys are being done. Uh, all over the place of insect abundance now where insects are trapped um, uh, they're, you know using all kinds of different methods um, and and their biomass is then calculated then the weight of them and and there are records going back in certain places to to compare that so um, yeah the, the science is is robust I think there is questions about the scope of it and the scale of it because we just don't have the data from every country in the world we can't say you know every single insect in 
every part of the world is is in decline. I mean, I don't think that's the case. Um, some insects are actually increasing. If you think about mosquitoes, for example, their range is expanding due to due to climate change. Um, cockroaches will do quite well in this human dominated world. So not there are winners and losers uh, and we don't know the full picture because the, the work hasn't been done, especially in the tropics where most insects live. But from the from the research that has been done, from from what we do know, there is a there is an alarming picture there. I was going to say that my my own child's big fear actually of climate change is that we'll see mosquitoes here in Ireland moving northward. So presumably some species will do well. And I'm just wondering, in, in the climate sciences, we look a lot at the projections, say, to 2030 or 2050 or 2100 about what the world might look like in a changing climate. Is there the same kind of projections for the fate of our insect populations? Uh, I mean, there is probably less certainty in climate science. I, I would say the kind of the the science around um, future prospects for insects writ large is is kind of at an earlier stage than climate science. Uh, it was it's only been in the last few years that uh, scientists really realised there was this um, uh, problem with with decline. So um, there isn't, you know kind of firm predictions about where things are going. But I mean, United Nations has warned that half a million species may be wiped out by the midpoint of this uh, century. Uh, the UN's also warned that there's a food security crisis looming because of the lack of pollinators, the bees, the flies, the other insects that um, pollinate all the uh, lovely food that we um, eat. So uh, there is there is a kind of a certain amount of uh, warning and um, uh, forecasting going on about wh where things are heading, but we don't we don't entirely know where how this is going to end and how it's going to end for insects and selfishly how it's going to end for us too. You mentioned the the decline in species overall, not just insects, but all sorts of plants and animals. And I'm just wondering why you decided to specifically focus on insects for your book. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd be surprised as anybody if a few years ago somebody said my first book would be on. Um, insects because i think like many people I, I didn't think much about them and when i did i was kind of kind of irritated by a bite or a sting or, or something like that but um uh the the kind of uh, this flurry of reports coming out from different parts of the world showing these big declines really struck me it really kind of grabbed my attention because you just don't see these declines in conservation biology um really over those kind of short time periods and the more I kind of spoke to scientists about about this, um, uh, and and more more I learned about the consequences of it, it, it really kind of grabbed me as being this kind of untold alarming story. Um, it's I mean, it's probably the greatest and most consequential loss of life that's happening in the world right now, and yet one of the least known. I mean, it's incredibly important, and I feel. I feel we should be talking about it more. Yeah, it's such an invisible problem. But in terms of what we can do about it, I mean, are there are there clear causes and clear answers and solutions to actually deal with this problem, or is it is it too random because there's too many insects and and we there's so little we don't know? There's certainly lots of different overlapping, <clears throat> excuse me, um, reasons why this is happening. I mean, the big three would be habitat loss, uh, which you know it's affected all kinds of creatures, but um, insects have been caught up in that. I mean, we've chopped down a third of the forests uh, around the world since the industrial age. We've converted, um, you know, wildflower meadows and grasslands, um, the kind of areas the insects love, into monocultural farming, farmlands, uh, urban sprawl, highways, uh, you know, industrial areas, areas and so on. The second thing is uh, pesticide use. So not only we've, you know, converted lands and taken away the food from insects we, and shelter from insects, we've also poisoned the land. So if you're a bee, you're looking around, there's nothing to eat and there's a lot of poison around um, due to, you know, the indiscriminate use of insecticides. And the third thing is climate change. Uh, insects being pushed outside the, the boundaries of what they can tolerate in terms of heat. Um, so those are the three big kind of uh, pressures and, and you can act on, you can, can act on them. I mean, European Union has banned um, three of the worst neonicotinoids, which these insecticides that are very good at killing all kinds of insects, not just the pests you want killed in your crops. Um, we obviously can act on climate change for many, many reasons. 
uh, and we can slow the rate of habitat loss. So, I mean, there is hope there. It's not hopeless. We just need to get on with the job. Finally, Oliver, what's the one thing that you'd like to see readers of your book and listeners of this show do to become more aware of this particular insect crisis? Um, maybe just think about our surroundings around us. I mean, how we've pushed nature away from us and, and how maybe just inviting it back in is a, a nice thing to happen for many reasons let so, your grass grow a little bit <coughs> i like the me. sound of that less less reasons to mow my grass is always a good thing my thanks to oliver yeah. millman author of the insect crisis for joining us on down to earth i'm saying to the leaders who are here now this is on your watch sorry it's so important you know we are literally talking about having a safe future and you know, the elders are pressing the leaders and um, understand and um, this, you can't negotiate with science. You can't talk about a glass being half full. We have to get it down. We have to be on track for 1.5 and it is doable. That was, of course, former President Mary Robinson last year talking to Sky News at the UN climate negotiations, understandably getting quite emotional about the future of our planet. She'll be my guest for My Green Life in just a few minutes. But first, I'm joined by ecologist and presenter of RTE's EcoEye, Anya Murray, to give us the Irish context on the insect crisis that Oliver Millman was just speaking about. Hi, Anya. Hello, Cara. How are you today? Great. Thanks for coming on. I, you know, we've talked about the insect crisis in a global context, but I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the insects in Ireland that you think we as humans might be particularly dependent on for our way of life? Well, dependent on the first thing that's most obvious is the pollinators. So we know that bees pollinate about a third of our food crops. And in Ireland, we have bees uh, are responsible for pollinating crops like apples and strawberries, clover and oilseed rape. They're all dependent on pollinators. But really, that's just such a tiny, narrow view of how we're dependent on insects. Like all of our wild plants rely on insect pollinators to reproduce. So if we want any any wild plants growing in the countryside, um, growing in our cities, in our parks, in our gardens, we, we need our pollinators. Uh, and it's also the case that the pollinators are like the poster child of the insect world, because in Ireland, more than half of all our animal species are insects. And they just do so many different jobs in terms of breaking down waste and recycling nutrients. And insects are just fundamental to life on Earth. Without insects, nothing would really function. Yeah. And of course, we so, think we think about po pollinators as being bees, but it's not just bees, isn't it? There's other insects that pollinate, too. That's right. Uh, all, pollinators are also hoverflies. Uh, they're those little ones that look somewhere uh, a bit like a, a, a fly that mimic a wasp. Um, moths as well pollinate wild, wild plants. Uh, butterflies are even pollinators too. So it isn't just the bees. But the, the bees do the bulk of the work in terms of pollinating. Of course, there's there's you know a lot of interest I think in in trying to help pollinators, and there's been huge work in in raising awareness through the National Pollinator Plan. But are there insects below the ground that you think we're we're maybe not paying attention to that we should be? Absolutely, like all it, in nature, there's no such thing as waste, and it's insects uh, who break down those wastes in the soil. So every year, for example, when the leaves fall off the trees, uh, they are broken down by by fungi, by beetles, by all sorts of little weevils and ants and mites and springtails and everything in the soil, um, woodlice, millipedes, this a whole army of decomposers that live in the soil. And they just chomp through all those fallen twigs and leaves and dead things, that the, the, all the animals that die. There's a, in terms of nutrient cycling in, in the natural world, this is mostly carried out by insects. And that's just one example of the role that insects do that so, we we pay no attention to and we give them no no thanks or no credit for they're really like we all know now the importance of essential workers in society insects are the essential workers that we give zero credit to absolutely they're so important for that soil fertility and for food production but you know oliver was telling us about about this insect crisis happening globally do we have any idea whether or not this is happening in ireland and and to what extent 
We do. And the, the global collapse in insect populations is absolutely alarming. Almost a third of insect species included in, in the, the major global synthesis in 2019, almost a third have showed such low levels that they're now under threat of extinction. Um, and we know that this is the case in many places across the world where we, where we have data. And Ireland is no different, unfortunately, from these global trends. These are, are one of the groups of insects that we have data for. So because we've been surveying and assessing bees in Ireland since 1980, uh, we, we know that over half of the, the bees in Ireland have suffered substantial declines um, since 1980. And that's half of our 100 species of native bee. A lot of people think of honeybees as the main bee, but we have 100 native species of bee and the honeybee is a domesticated bee. Of these 100 species, about a third are threatened with extinction in Ireland. A third. Like, that's that's really, really serious. This is where we're on a precipice here and we need to turn things around. Apart from bees as well, we have we have decent data on butterflies. And we know that Irish butterflies are really struggling too. Since 2008, there's 6% fewer butterflies flying around Irish habitats. Now, that's an enormous decline, 6% in such a short space of time, that's little over a decade. So if that continues and we have that cumulative impact, that will be massive. So we know about the, the species that we can observe easily flying around, but what about the ones that are, that are living underground? Do we know anything about their status? There is so much that we don't know, and, and we have to extrapolate from the international studies as well, and we know the process that are driving these declines, and they are no different in Ireland. So uh, soil fertility, the, the uh, drainage of, of land, the ploughing, the adding of, of uh, pesticides and artificial fertilisers and uh, putting concrete over and all these different processes, they, they are no, no different really in Ireland than they are elsewhere. So we, we would also expect that there is about a third of insect species have, have reached very, very low levels in Ireland. Without wanting to be accused of, of farmer bashing here, it seems like what you're saying is that this is related to agricultural practices. Is there is there anything we can do to, to stop this from happening here in Ireland? There, there is. There's a lot that we could do. And I mean, that's, that's in a way the, the good news story is that we do know what the issues are and we know what we have to do to change um, I mean, the switch from hay to silage was, was a big part of the loss of, of bees in Ireland in the 70s and 80s. So we were we were cutting before the bees had a, had a chance to complete their life cycle or flowers are removed uh, much earlier from agricultural landscapes. And of course, it's the flowers that provide the nectar and the pollen for the bees and for the butterflies. Um, there's a lot of intensification continuing apace for dairy industry. There's still a lot of land being managed more intensively and leaving no room for insects. Now, it's not just agriculture. We can also look at uh, other land use changes like the spread of forestry plantations, which leaves little room for flowering plants. You know, if you go into a, a native woodland or, or of semi-natural deciduous species, there's a lot more flowering plants. Even even trees are huge sources, like willow trees and um, and hazel catkins that are out at the moment. They have a huge amount of pollen, which is really important resource for early nesting bees. So when we have the lowest woodland cover in Europe, we have so little native woodland, and instead we have plantations of Sitka spruce. There's a, there's a huge difference in that. There's a gulf between the, the habitat provision of a, of a plantation, a conifer plantation, and the habitat provision of a, a semi-natural or native species woodland. And this goes across habitat types. So the drainage and the loss of our peatlands, the removal of so many wetlands from the landscape over the last 30 years, like we've lost really alarming rates as well of, of wet corners. You know those... Like the little out-of-the-way bits, the marsh at the bottom of the farm that wasn't really ever utilised, which often has now, in the last 20 or 30 years, they've been planted up with forestry or drained and reseeded for, reclaimed for agriculture. So it's, it's the death by a thousand cuts, mm-hmm. the loss of so many portions of habitat throughout Ireland.
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the, the the food supply issue for bees, and I was one of those kind of do-gooders who thought that I would go and learn. I did a beekeeping course with my child and that we would keep bees as a way to help the pollinators, and I very quickly found out that that maybe isn't a good idea because these domesticated honeybees then compete for this very limited food supply of, of flowers out there for, for them to, to eat and to use. And uh, and this term of green deserts was something that, that, that was brought to me that actually in, in rural parts of Ireland, it's even harder for pollinators to, to find flowers and everything. And I, I'm just wondering, in your work on Nature File, which you present on Lyric FM about Ireland's plants and animals, do you find that people are are kind of leaning toward helping these more charismatic species and maybe repulsed by, by you know, creepy crawlies that live underground? Or, or do you see a, a trend there in terms of people trying to save the bees but maybe ignoring everything else? Yes, I mean, there's definitely, there's something psychological about bees. They look like little flying teddy bears, don't they? And people love to to do things to help bees and put out wildflower seed mixes and stuff. And and having more wildflowers in our landscapes, like you say, there's a big difference between a a landscape or even a park, a local urban park can be a, a green desert. Or it can be somewhere where the lawns are left to grow up a little bit and there's more wildflower species, and there's resources for, for insects like bees. But then, as you say, I write Nature File, which goes out every Saturday morning on, on um, RTE Lyric FM. And yes, I love writing about those less charismatic or glamorous insects. Um, things like the grasshoppers, you know. Mm-hmm. We've, got, we've got several species of grasshopper in Ireland. They sing, they use their back legs like a comb, and they rub them against their wings. And people who are into grasshoppers can identify the different species based on their song, just like you might know the difference between a a robin or a blackbird. We've got ladybirds here. We've got dozens of different ladybirds. We've got dragonflies, which are so beautiful and colourful and have this incredible life cycle. We have 14,000 different species of moth in Ireland. There are so many amazing insect species and they're, they're the most fascinating creatures. And yes, we tend to think of like, ooh, bugs and kind of creepy things that we don't like. But the insect world is amazing. As I, as I said at the beginning, half of Ireland's animals are insects, half of our animal species. And there is just <laughs> there's the most amazing world out there in terms of insects. And so much that we can do to restore wild habitats and help insect populations recover. We can actually turn this around. Well, I'm going to take a closer look at what's inside my garden when I go home now with with that in mind. My thanks to Anya Murray for giving us her expert insight into Ireland's own insects and their future. Up next, former (laughs) president of Ireland, Mary Robinson, will be telling me about her green light. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today to shape a better future for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. But today, my guest has actually inspired the world to embrace a green life in her exceptional career spanning over five decades. It's a great honor to welcome Ireland's seventh president and first woman president, as well as chair of the elders, Mary Robinson. Welcome, Mrs. Robinson. Mary, Thank you. Good you, morning. Good morning. You've had such a diverse career, starting with law and politics, but at some stage in your life, you seem to decide to to make climate change your top priority and really dedicate your life to it. So I'm dying to know what was that aha moment or maybe a series of moments that caused you to choose that path uh, to work on climate action? It was uh, actually uh, a realization that I had missed when I served as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, how much the climate crisis was already affecting the poorest countries and undermining a whole range of human rights to food and water, health, education, etc. Uh, I was aware of the seriousness of climate change when I um, served in the UN, but there was another part of it dealing with it, and I just didn't make the link. It was when I formed a very small NGO called Realizing Rights that was working on those rights that really matter if you don't have them um, in African countries, and then. I I realized that the injustice of climate change was that it was affecting disproportionately and much earlier the poorest countries and communities and small island states and indigenous peoples who aren't responsible. So everywhere I went in Africa doing this work on behalf of realizing rights and also as honorary president of Oxfam, um, I kept hearing things are so much worse. This is outside our experience. And 
that you know brought me to climate but through the lens of human rights so i don't talk about climate change i talk about either climate justice or the climate crisis you focused a lot uh, on on women in your work. You wrote a book on climate justice in 2018, and it was specifically geared uh, toward women. And you've done a lot of work on the role of women in the international climate negotiations. Why specifically women? Well, I was quite shocked when I went to my first uh, conference on climate, my first COP in Copenhagen, because it was so male, scientific, technical, nothing about gender or indeed human rights. So the following year in Cancun. Fortunately, Patricia Espinosa was the foreign minister, so she was president of the COP. She's now, of course, um, leading uh, on behalf of the UN, the UNFCCC. But she and, um, uh, you know, the, the two women uh, 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 um, who had presided over Copenhagen and would preside over Durban the following year, all three of us were on a, all three were on a platform with me. And we decided to form a network of women leaders on gender and climate. And women leaders were ministers from different countries around the world on, gen on energy, on environment, on foreign affairs in some cases. And of course, um, because they were heads of their delegations, they could also decide who would be in their delegations. So the first thing we did was strengthen um, a decision on um, parity of delegations and on committees, et cetera, um, between men and women. And, Parity, of course, is 50%. We're still not there, but at least now, because of that decision, the UN has to uh, note each year the office of, um, of uh, uh, the UNFCCC, what the gender balance is. And then we got the gender action plan. But probably the most important thing that this uh, network was able to do, because they were heads of delegations, was to include grassroots women and uh, indigenous women and young women in their delegations and this meant that they had delegates badges and they were in the room where decisions were being taken. And they had a huge impact. I mean, I saw it myself before Paris and increasingly since Paris. Uh, those voices stopped the floor, if you like. Um, delegates put down their pens or their pencils and listened. And they heard you know, the frontline stories of just how bad the climate crisis was. And up to that, you know, it had been so technical rather than about human rights and gender. It's really good to hear that. I was at the, the COP in Paris, COP21, and was equally shocked at, at how male it is. But, but it was good. it's good to hear that that's changing. We actually played a clip earlier in the show of an interview you did with Sky from COP26 last year, where, of course, I'm sure you remember, you became quite emotional about the negotiations. So what was happening at the time in those negotiations that inspired such a strong reaction from you? Yes, I remember that. I, I was doing quite a lot of uh, commenting for Sky. They had asked me as chair of the elders to be a sort of analyst. So I was on at the very beginning. And then this interview was towards the end. And we just had the report from uh, a Climate Action Tracker that despite all the commitments that had been made before and at COP26 in Glasgow, uh, we were still heading for a world of at least 2.4% um, uh, 2.4 degrees. Um, and that is so far above the 1.5 we must stay at or below that it would be catastrophic. And I realized while I was on air that, you know, everybody um, under 70 would experience, you know, a catastrophic world. Every, anybody under 30 would live through it for a long time. And, you know, it, it, just, it, it, it just affected me. And uh, I don't like when I become a little bit emotional, but uh, sometimes I can see that it's quite effective because it did, as they say, go viral. I was going to say it got the world's attention, which is really important. But we've just seen from the final report of the IPCC six assessment published this week and something we covered in detail earlier on the show that I think one of the more shocking con conclusions of the report was that we very likely overshot that 1.5 degree limit that you mentioned. So having worked so hard yourself to achieve that goal and have it written in the Paris Climate Agreement, what are your feelings now in hearing that news that we've probably overshot it? Well, as you say, this is the third report of the IPCC within the last 12 months, and they'll have a final synthesis report before um, COP27, and they'll bring everything together, if you like. I think we really owe a huge debt to the scientists. They're not distracted by COVID or distracted by this awful war in Ukraine, as so much of the media in the world is. They just keep an eye on the science and the loss of biodiversity and the extinction of species and all of this happening 
um, in such a rapid time and that we're getting nearer the tipping points. So we really need to listen to these warnings. And, you know, I believe that we should never waste a crisis. And now we have two intertwined crises, the awful war in Ukraine and the effect it's having in uh, the rise in food and fuel prices, particularly fuel prices, and the dependency of Europe on um, uh, coal and oil and gas from Russia. And I was cutting out coal, which is good, but it also, in fact, should look very seriously at stopping paying for what's destroying Ukraine and the, you know, the, uh, fueling the war. Um, but there's also a spin-off effect around the world now of higher food and fuel prices, which punishes the very people that I care about so much with climate justice, the poorest countries, the poorest communities. The effect in Africa is already tangible. Uh, Hindu Omara Ibrahim, who's one of the stories in that book on climate mm -hmm. justice from Chad, sent me an email saying, Mary, uh, a WhatsApp saying, you know, in Chad, people can't buy bread anymore. Wow. You know, so that's the impact. Now, that that's the double crisis. The, the crisis of climate and the crisis of Ukraine should really bring us to have what I call a moonshot approach now to uh, how we move rapidly to clean energy and get out of fossil fuel. I say moonshot because it's from John F. Kennedy saying, um, I'm going to put a man on the moon. Mm -hmm. And it was impossible when he said it. And it happened in eight years. That's exactly the time we have, eight years to 2030, to reduce by 43% our fossil fuel and to peak by 2025. Presumably, you'll be involved in the next UN climate negotiation taking place in, in Egypt in some way. Do, do you think those negotiations are, are going well and, and will actually achieve the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement? I certainly will be at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh um, uh, as chair of the elders. And I'm afraid the negotiations are not going well enough. For example, one of the commitments, an important commitment made in Glasgow, was that countries would double climate adaptation finance by 2025. But there is actually no clear plan, no pathway being you know, uh, entered into. Now, actually, I know that some European countries are aware that more has to be done. And one of them is Ireland, I'm glad to say, that is putting a lot of pressure on. So I'm, you know, I'm helping to support that as, as one of the key decisions, along with the 100 billion a year, that we have more for climate adaptation, because that's helping uh, to offset the climate shocks. And as I mentioned, the Ukrainian war, the war of uh, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is adding to those shocks by um, a rise in food and fuel prices. For those of us who, who care about this issue and, and, and want to see successful climate negotiations, which I think is, is most people, actually, what do you think that we can do as individuals to help try and uh, galvanize some sort of successful international climate negotiation? Well, when I speak to audiences, I almost invariably say, you know, I encourage them rather to take at least to take these three steps. And the first one is to make the climate crisis personal in your own life because you should, it's that serious. And you know you're doing it if you, you know, um, are doing something more because of that, more um, energy efficiency, changing your diet maybe, and changing the way you travel, um, you know, all, all of those things, um, being slower to buy products that you don't need uh, and so on. Um, the secondly, to get angry with those who should be doing more and aren't. And that's governments. Yes, the Irish government is moving in the right direction. We've just seen the carbon budget adopted, but not fast enough still. Um, so governments, cities, investment, corporations, they all need to be pushed to do more. So join or help organizations which are trying to persuade them. And the third thing, and this is the most important step, we must imagine this future that we need to be hurrying towards because it's going to be a much better future that we haven't grasped. We think it's going to be cost us. It's going to be a burden to do what we have to do for climate. We need to realize we'll have a much healthier world. We'll have air that will be sweeter. Remember the early days of COVID where we were all loving the air and the birds singing because you know, the, uh, we didn't have the fossil fuel of cars mm -hmm. driving, etc. So um, uh, healthier and also cities will be greener and nicer to live in. And we'll actually probably have gardens and uh, even, um, you know, food supplied in cities. The countryside will be regenerated, rewilded the way that's happening now in the, in the Midlands in the former bog area where it's becoming a carbon sink. And um, all of this will be exciting. And we have to get people, 
you know, really energized because we have such a short time. And people are much more energized if they have positive ideas of where they want to go. Yeah, speaking of personal, your your hometown of Ballinaw, County Mayo, aims to be Ireland's greenest town. So I'm wondering, ha- having lived there your whole life, how do you think your own community community's views on climate change have, have evolved in the time you live there? Do you think they understand the challenge now and, and know how to solve it? I'm actually quite proud of what the town of Ballinaw and indeed the county of Mayo um, is doing. Uh, it's it, It's quite impressive. They've had a number of events. I've been supportive. I haven't been physically at them. I'm going physically on the 9th of May to an event um, which will involve the young people as young leaders, secondary school children from uh, Mayo and Sligo. It's uh, supported by uh, Galway, by NUIG, where my archive is, and Mayo County Council and the Mary Robinson Centre, which um, is coming on stream. They will be coming on stream, hopefully opening later this year. And we'll be actually in the coach house of um, the, the Mary Robinson Centre. So that will be uh, exciting to uh, you know, take part in an intergenerational mm-hmm. conversation with young secondary school students from uh, Sligo and Mayo and listen to them, hear their perspective and encourage them, especially to imagine this future we need to be hurrying towards. Finally, Mary, you know, we hear politicians in Ireland all the time saying we need to bring people with us in, in this journey on climate action. What do you think is, is the way for us to bring everyone with us in Ireland in this journey? I certainly believe that that is extremely important. We have to bring people with us and we have to protect those who are um, uh, energy poor, who are on the margins. And, you know, I keep saying, and I want to emphasize this, we actually need to spend our children's money in in the next uh, eight years to do effectively, to make sure that people um, uh, aren't suffering too much from the high cost of energy as we make the transition to clean energy and to make sure that we can insulate houses that people can afford and get the grants. There are grants, but even more possibly should be done to help to make houses more efficient, make buildings more efficient, make transport more efficient, just crowd it all in a moonshot way into the next eight years. The IPPC, IPCC report, a recent one um, said, that the world should be spending six times more on clean, uh, um, uh, on clean energy investment. If Ireland spent six times more, we would probably get there, you know, more quickly, obviously. And, you know, I love the words of Nelson Mandela. Uh, it always seems impossible until it is done. We have to do the impossible and we will have a much better world when it was done. Well, those are beautiful words to end on. My thanks to former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson, for her phenomenal work helping the world lead a green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Rousseau, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcasts for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we'll find out what Ireland's new carbon budgets really mean. But until then, stay curious.